I want to, uh, shifting gears, ch- invite you to, cha- um, to turn with me in your Bibles to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, and if you're following along in one of the blue Bibles uh, on the ground near you, you can find that on page 1042. And I'm going to read for us Revelation 22, starting at verse 6. Let me invite you to stand with me as we uh, give our attention to God's word together. Revelation is a, uh, a record of a vision that the Apostle John received at the end of his life. And uh, there's been an angel who has kind of been his tour guide or docent for uh, like th- this vision that he's experienced And so John writes these words, Revelation 22, starting in verse 6. The angel is the person he's referring to. And he, the angel, said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, would you help us now, help us to uh, understand uh, the imagery of this this passage, help us to even more than that to understand um, who Jesus is, what he has done uh, for us, help us to respond with worship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may please be seated. So what is Christmas all about? This is the uh, fourth Sunday in Advent, this season of preparation, the, uh, this time leading up to Christmas. It's the, the last Sunday before Christmas. 
And it's also uh, the time, uh, if you were with us in January 2019, we began the year of 2019 looking at the book of Revelation. And we've kind of, throughout the course of the year, we've looked at most of the book of Revelation, not every passage, but we've kind of taken it in chunks. And, um, and so this morning, as I, I'm really trying to kind of bring these two things together. How do we kind of wrap up the year as we finish the book of Revelation, as we, as we move towards the, uh, the Christmas season. I've been trying to figure out how to tie these two things together, and so what I want to do this morning is just kind of ask this, this question. What is Christmas all about? What is Christmas all about? Now, that might seem like a simple question with an obvious answer. Um, we're at church, so we're going to go with Jesus. <laughs> all right. Um, and yet there's been a lot, even uh, just in the life of our nation and in my own life in this last week, that has made me wonder, do we really understand what Christmas is all about? Um, personally, yesterday I was talking with a friend, and, uh, and he asked me, are you ready for Christmas? And, you know, the way I answered that question revealed very little about Jesus. Uh, I still got some shopping to do. I think I've still, I think Amazon's still doing, um, can still get it here by Christmas Eve. You know, there, there's still, there's still a lot to be done to prepare for Christmas. Um, uh, something else, other experience I had actually took place in this room <laughs> this week. One of my sons had his end of the school year or semester winter conference or uh, no winter uh, concert. Is the, is the word, you know, uh, where the, the band and the orchestra and the choir, they all play the holiday, uh, I have to be very careful, the, the words I'm using here, the holiday concert, because it was very, very uh, carefully, the word Christmas was very carefully removed from any song. <laughs> um, I don't want to be too bah humbug about this, but when they changed We Wish You a Merry Christmas to We Wish You a Swingin' Holiday, I, I just had to wonder, like, why is it okay for fifth graders to sing about swinging holidays but not about Christmas? That just seems a little bit strange to me. <laughs> oh, what in the world is Christmas all about? Um, there's also, um, obviously, the big headline in the news this week is that um, the president was impeached and... Um, I'm not going to give you my opinion on that, but one of the things that's been interesting the back and forth over the last couple of days, uh, I, I feel like one of the kind of subplots in this whole discussion is the role of Christians in uh, the kind of the political conversation, the national conversation. And uh, it just seems like there, uh, for many people, your view of the impeachment of the president is sort of a, um, a sign of your righteousness. <laughs> whether, whether you we think it's far too late for this to happen or whether you think, uh, you know, you, you must not be a Christian if, if you support this. Either way, it's like your view on the impeachment of the president um, in the eyes of many seems to, um, seems to sort of summarize your attitude towards the Christian faith. And it raises again the question, do we really understand uh, what is going on at Christmas? Because clearly there's an obvious way to answer that question, what is Christmas all about? Which is to say that Christmas is about Jesus, period, the end. That's, that's, that's all there is to say. But I would like to just, uh, for a little bit this morning, kind of press you 
a little bit, maybe see if we can press in a little bit deeper um, to that answer. Because I don't want to simply, I don't want us to simply walk away from church this morning thinking that if the clerk in the checkout line at the store would just say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, that like our work here would be done and all would be right with the world. And so looking at this passage at the end of the book of Revelation is really a uh, a great way to understand what Christmas really is about because it frames the entire narrative. It tells us why Jesus came. Uh, so often, I think that our celebration of Christmas and observance of Christmas kind of uh, just takes us to, um, I don't know, a place of sentimentality of, oh, you know, poor Mary and Joseph on a donkey, and there was no room for them in the end that night that Jesus was born. Uh, what are we, um, let me say it like this, but uh, the, the, the book of Revelation kind of framing Christmas for us, it puts a finer point on the story of Christmas. Uh, why were there choirs of angels adoring this baby born in Bethlehem? What is so significant about the humble birth of Jesus in the cattle stall? Uh, why were there no kings or nobles attending his birth? Why were shepherds the first uh, to hear the great news that a Savior was born? When we look at Christmas through the lens of Revelation 22, what we see is we see the whole story. We see that the baby born on Christmas now sits on the throne of the cosmos. The baby born at Christmas sits on the throne of the cosmos and he is reigning and ruling and he is orchestrating all things until the time when he will finally return. And when he returns, finally, at last, everything will be made right. And we will long no more and we will want no more and we will finally be satisfied. Revelation 22 shows us the point of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us, that is the goal of those who have put their trust in Jesus. There's a song um, that you've surely heard this season or last season or, or whenever, uh, Mary Did You Know? <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> I, I, it's a funny song, really. I, I, I was looking it up the other day. It, um, it, it was written by the Gaither Vocal Band in 1991, which... I don't think speaks terribly high <laughs> uh, for it, but um, probably what made this song pretty famous was um, when the Pentatonics recorded their a cappella version of Mary Did You Know in like uh, 2014, I think. Um, but it, it's kind of, it's been, this song has been critiqued as being like sappy and sentimental. Um, it's really kind of um, asking us to imagine Mary there holding the newborn Jesus. And the song is asking, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know um, that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? Um, and all of these songs kind of being asked in a, I don't know, kind of sappy, sentimental sort of way. People have kind of dismissed the song, but last year I noticed somebody pointing out that the reality is that Mary actually did know all of most of those things that uh, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and uh, told her that she would conceive and bear a child, um, 
in Luke 1, the angel told, he said these words to Mary. He said, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's what Mary was told. Mary didn't know maybe the details of exactly what was going to happen. But Mary knew that this boy, this baby born on Christmas, um, on that first Christmas, um, would be significant. Um, would be not significant simply in being the firstborn son, but he would be the one that the world has been aching for. He would finally come. And so if our Christmas celebration kind of revolves around the sentimentalism of a, uh, of a woman giving birth in a cattle stall, like that in and of itself is kind of sad and, and worth remembering. And I think we're missing the point because Mary did know in general what, what Revelation 22 makes very clear for us. That the baby born on Christmas is now sitting on the throne of the cosmos where he rules all things and one day he will return. That's what Christmas is all about. And so really what I want to do for a few moments this morning is like unpack for us four implications of that reality that Revelation 22 makes clear for us. Christmas is an annual opportunity for us to retrain and retool our hearts, retune our hearts to long for our once and coming king. Christmas is all about Jesus. The baby born at, uh, at Christmas, <laughs> the baby born at Christmas, now rules over the cosmos and he will one day come again. So what? Well, four things, four implications the first thing that uh, we see in Revelation 22 is the reality that we are transformed through worship. We're transformed through worship. There's a, there's a funny thing, I guess, that happens in Revelation 22. And really, I think to understand what, what, what this says about worship, you have to, in some ways, try to get your head around just what's happening in the book of Revelation. Because I know culturally we have this idea that the book of Revelation is really confusing and you can never really understand what it means. And um, if you think about what the word re revelation means, it means that there was something that's hidden that has been revealed, right? If you came home one day and told your you know, spouse or kids or whoever, I had a revelation today, you, you would be saying, like, I saw something, not something was confusing to me. Uh, and so what's happening in the book of Revelation is, is the apostle John, uh, he's an old man, he's been exiled to uh, the island of Patmos, which is in... Uh, modern-day Greece, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And um, he's living there at the end of his life. And on a Sunday morning, he goes to church to worship. And as he is worshiping, it says that he experiences this vision. Um, this vision of, uh, again, not so much the future. I mean, some of what John sees is, is what happens in the future. But really what, what's happening is... John is living in a tumultuous time. Uh, John is living in a time where um, uh, the, the church of Jesus is not uh, in favor with the, the culture or with the government, and they're experiencing persecution. And really what's happening in the book of Revelation is God is kind of pulling back the curtain on human history. And he's, and he's showing John what's really going on behind all the seemingly dark and disturbing and somewhat random events. 
God is showing him his purpose and his plan. And so John sees this vision and he writes it down and he sends it to the church and that's what we have as the book of Revelation. Uh, but as John sees this vision, I, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, there's an angel who is kind of his tour guide throughout this vision. And there are two places in, in chapter tw- uh, t- 19 and in chapter 22 where John, like, seeing this vision of God on the throne uh, and what's really going on in human history, it, John is so just overwhelmed and overjoyed that he falls down and he begins to try to worship the angel. And both times, he, he, John has been so overcome uh, and falling down to worship and worshiping the angel, the angel says, stop, don't, don't, like, don't worship me, worship Worship God. Worship the living and true God. And what I think we should take away from that is that John's impulse to worship when he finds out what's really going on in human history is correct. It's just misguided. It's correct and yet it's misguided. And in much the same way, so much of our lives are uh, consumed with worship that is uh, you know, it, it's the correct impulse. It's just misguided. It's just misdirected. Um, so much of what our lives are taken up with is misdirected worship. Now, I know that we don't think of it as worship. Um, we, don't, we don't really use the word, the word worship uh, outside of a, maybe a church context, but that's what it is, um, you know, in, some, in small ways, in big ways. Um, I mean, e- even in just very simple ways, th- there's a reality that we can't really enjoy something unless we praise it, unless we share it. If you see a great movie, uh, you want to tell somebody about it. If you are reading a great book, I, do, I don't know if people still read books, but <laughs> if, if you are in the room with my wife and she's reading a great book, she will regularly share lines from that book with you. And it doesn't matter what you're doing because she's so excited that she wants to share it with everybody. Um, if you see a beautiful sunset, if you have a great meal, um, I mean, the thought of enjoying those things on your own is, is kind of sad, right? You have, to, you have to praise them. You have to share them with others in order to fully enjoy them. And so it is with God. And one of the overarching themes of the book of Revelation is that our lives find their true resonance as we worship the God who is alive for who he is. The promise of Revelation 22 is that one day we will be satisfied. Uh, That's what the imagery of the, um, he says, those who are thirsty come and drink. That's what this is all about. It's saying one day you will finally be satisfied. Those who love God one day will see him face to face and you will finally be satisfied. Um, That's the promise, God with us, worshiping him face to face. I remember when when one of my boys was uh, just young, before he could even talk, and uh, he was such a happy guy, he was such a smiley guy, and... um, I remember this sense of like looking at my son, this, you know, baby, and uh, three, four months old, unable to communicate, well, unable to speak, and yet you would look at him and just getting, you know, in his face, he would, he would smile at you, and his whole face would light up, and um, I, I think in some small way, that's a picture of what you will experience when you see God face to face 
for those who are in Christ. Uh, at, the, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, John says, I saw the face of Jesus and he was glorified in heaven. And he said, I fell down like I was dead. <laughs> he said, I saw the face of Jesus and it terrified me. And yet at the end of the book of Revelation, he's saying that one day the face that shines like sun will look at us and we'll be like that baby who sees the face of a parent and is overjoyed, uh, is, is satisfied, is complete. And we will finally know that we are home. And so Christians now are people who worship. Christians now are people who worship God when we know what he's doing, when we understand what he's doing, when we like what he's doing. And Christians are people who worship God uh, even now when we don't understand what he's doing. We say, God, I don't, what in the world are you doing in my life? What are you doing in this world? Christians are people who worship. We are transformed through worship. Second implication, the fact that the baby born on Christmas sits on the throne of the universe is this. We now live with an urgent patience. We live with an urgent patience. Uh, I know that sounds like a contradiction, but nothing, I think, in our time characterizes life in, like, you know, 2019, in, uh, in 2020, in, in the world that we live in, than our busyness, um, this sense that we have got to get more done and we've got to do it faster. Um, you know, the reality is, I think we, we, we think that there was this time in the past when people weren't so busy. People have always had this sense of, you know, hurry about them. But I think what is different in our time is that we see our busyness as a sign of our worth. And so we, we, we try to pretend, oh, I'm so busy. And yet we're kind of secretly patting ourselves in the back. Like, I'm in such high demand. Everybody wants my time, my attention. I just can't respond to all of these emails from my adoring fans. It's just um, several people this week, I, just in talking with people, um, many people mentioning... Um, you know, these, I, I got to close these deals before the end of the year. Oh, I wish I could take a couple days off after Christmas, but I just can't. You know, the demands on me are, are too great. I have so much to do. And, you know, one of the great themes of the whole book, really, of Revelation is patience, patient endurance. Uh, one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the book of Revelation is that those who are... Um, faithful to God, uh, are described not as being the ones who do kind of heroic things for God. Those who are commended in the book of Revelation are not those who um, accomplish heroic acts of faith. They're not leaders of significant movements or whatever. Those who are commended aren't those who do incredible things for God. Those who, who are commended are simply those who endure until the end those who are patient, those who hang on, those who hold on and wait and trust in God, those who are patient. One of the astounding things, I think, if you, if you consider the character of God, one of the astounding things is how incredibly patient he is. How incredibly patient he is. I mean, when things go wrong in my life, I want to just wipe them all clean and start over fresh. And God has been so incredibly patient with us. Um, I mean, if you think about uh, God coming into the world, 
um, I mean, the, the history of God's people. For 2,000 years, the, the people of Israel crying out and saying, God, how long? God, when will you finally come? When will you make all things right? When will you finally deliver us? For thousands of years, God, or God's people waiting until God finally shows up in Jesus. And then he finally shows up. And I mean, think about the, the, the patience of God, the, the almighty God, the, 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 the word, the reason, the, um, the cause of all things being conceived in the womb of a little girl and waiting nine months to be born. I mean, the, the incredible patience of God. It's amazing. And then Jesus, having been born, doesn't begin his ministry immediately. I mean, I guess it'd be a little bit creepy, the image of a two-year-old saying, everybody follow me. But, uh, but not in his 20s. I mean, think about Jesus as a teenager and in his 20s, working, we think, presumably, with his father, Joseph, making good tables, going to the synagogue. Like, can you imagine how many really bad sermons Jesus listened to? <laughs> and sitting there in the middle of the congregation going, this is, I'm just going to be patient. Like, can you imagine that? No, you're messing it up here, guy. <laughs> the incredible patience of God. And then calling his first followers, and they're so reluctant, and he's so kind, he's so patient, and on and on, and of course, you know, following his uh, death and his resurrection, even now, the patience of God to wait as he is, as he's, as he's, we don't know exactly, uh, you know, what his purposes are in human history, and yet he is, he's playing all things out. He is, he is, he's patient. He's not in a rush. Patient until he returns, and I just think that um, what a contrast with my life. You know, I am in such a rush. And you know, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that the biggest failures in my life have been the times when I have just rushed into things. Uh, a, a large percentage of the sin in my life is because of my um, impatience, my, my unwillingness to wait on God. I, uh, I rush into things. I try to force something to happen. It's, it's just not time or I want... I want things to move faster, and so I'm trying to push too hard. Just incredible impatience. And so what do we do? I mean, how do we, how do we live with patience? Uh, because you could turn around and say, well, just knock it off. Like, just, you know, grow up, settle down, lower your expectations. Um, the, the key here, the key to living with patience isn't willpower. The key is understanding that God is on the throne. The key is understanding that God is in control and nothing is going to happen that will thwart God's plan in your life because you slowed down and were patient to wait for God. Um, do you know what the greatest tragedy of all is? The greatest tragedy is that when God came into the world and took on human flesh, the world crucified him. I mean, the greatest evil in human history is that human beings killed the Son of God. 
And we could look at that and say, what a tragedy and what a mistake and what a, you know, what a shame. And in a sense, yes, of course it was, but in another sense, that was God's plan all along. You know, Isaiah 53 says that it was the will of God to crush Jesus because he was crushed for our iniquities. And it was by Jesus' wounds that we are healed. And so what that means is that the greatest tragedy in human history, God is actually using to do the most necessary good in the world. God is reconciling sinners like us to himself because of the cross of Jesus. The greatest tragedy is actually what accomplishes God's great purpose in the world. And so if God uses even the most heinous event in history to work good in our lives, then can't we be patient even when we don't understand what God is doing? And so part of the reality of, of Christmas and, and seeing Christmas in light of Revelation 22 is learning to live with this kind of patience, not based on willpower, but based on the fact that God knows what he's doing. We have to be patient. And yet at the same time, I feel like I have to say this because... Um, Patience could be used as an excuse for laziness. And so what we need is not just lazy, passive patience, but we need a, a kind of holy, urgent patience. And we see this in small ways, even, even in these words in this passage. You know, how does the book end? Come, Lord Jesus. You know, it's a cry. It's a prayer. It's a looking at the world and saying, Jesus, you're the only one that can fix this. So would you please come? Would you please return? There's a longing for his return. But there's also the sense in the Bible that as we wait for him, that we have work to do. That God has given us a job. I was talking to a friend um, this week, a pastor friend, and he, he, he was uh, just uh, talking about what he, what he, some of the things that God's been doing in his life in this last week, and he, he, he was just saying how uh, this conviction has kind of gripped him that I was made for God. God was not made for me. God does not exist to make me happy. I exist to make God, I mean, the word happy doesn't even, doesn't even capture it. Uh, I exist to glorify God. That's why I'm here, and I am most happy when I am glorifying God. That is the purpose of my life. And so we live with an urgent patience. Thirdly, Jesus is the organizing principle of life. Jesus is the organizing principle of life. Um, I, I don't know if that sounds obtuse or, or vague. I, I don't know how much more clearly to say this, but I, I guess my, uh, what I'm trying to get across is, is this. We can say, Christmas is all about Jesus. Life is all about Jesus. And we can say that and we can mean it or we can think we can mean it and yet there are still like entire sections of our lives that we are walling off and saying, yeah, but God, don't open that door. <laughs> I don't want you in that, in that room. Um, or we can think about Jesus like he's the cherry on top of everything else. Uh, you know, I've got my my work, I've got my kids, I've got my family, I've got all these things in my life, and Jesus is just, you know, he's the cherry on top. He just makes everything a little bit sweeter. Look at what it says in verse 13. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega, the final letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. How much more comprehensively could he say, every single thing in life is about me. Um, We can so easily say it's all about Jesus. But what this means is that Jesus is foundational to everything. He is central to everything. And he is the fulfillment of every aspect of life. That there is no, or there can be, I mean, uh, for each of us there is, and yet there really can not be parts of our lives that we are saying, okay, Jesus, um, I believe that you were born, I believe that you died, I believe that you rose again, but keep your hands off of my time, I'm in charge of that. Or keep your hands off of my money, or my sexuality, or my relationships, or whatever. There, he is the central organizing theme of all of life, the central organizing principle of life. There's no part of my life that's off limits to Jesus. Every aspect of my life is kind of open to God on the, on the altar before God. Now that could sound terrifying, but friends, Jesus is good. He is so good. And so we make him the central organizing principle of our lives, not because he's trying to take things away uh, that are good for us, and we, and, we, and we make him the central organizing principle of our lives, not just because it's the right thing to do, but we do it because it's the only way to truly keep our lives from falling apart. Part of the, um, I'm, I'm going to be 40 in 2020. <laughs> I am mi- I'm middle-aged. I, I have realized that um, nobody has referred to me as that young pastor in a couple of years. I used to get that all the time. Oh, that young pastor. I'm like, not anymore. My back is killing me. Like, (laughs) one of the things that I'm realizing is that you get to a point in your life and what you realize is, or what I'm realizing, let me say it like this. In my 20s, I thought the reason that my life wasn't all like coming together yet was because I'm only in my 20s and I've still got plenty of time. And I'm getting to the point in my life where I realize, like, I'm not that good at this. I don't mean this. I mean, like, life. <laughs> and the only way I know to keep it all from just falling apart is to make Jesus the center, the foundation, the goal, the end point. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end the answer to the world's questions, the answer to everything the world is asking, uh, the troubles of the world find their answer in Jesus. And we partner with God in what he's doing in this world, not by having the correct perspective on every political issue, every social, cultural, whatever the issue of the day is. We partner with God in what he's doing in the world by making Jesus the foundation, the center, the goal, and the hope of all that we do. Fourthly and finally, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. The overarching message of the book of Revelation can be summarized like this. Despite the way it looks, Jesus is on the throne. 
does it often occur to you that there is a God who is alive and at work in our world? Because I think most of us are sort of functional deists. Regardless of what we think or say or believe, we sort of act like there's a God who started this world and once or twice has interacted in it, but most of the time he's hidden far, far away behind the clouds and he doesn't really have anything to do with our everyday lives. And what the book of Revelation is revealing to us is this. When we look at our world, we see its problems, but when God pulls back the curtain and shows us what's really going on in the world, in order to comfort us, what he shows us is that despite the way everything looks, God is on the throne. He's in control. He is powerful. Nothing has caught him by surprise or off guard. Jesus is on the throne. The baby born at Christmas now rules over every square inch of the universe. And so we look to him with hope today. We look to him with hope this Christmas. And we look to him with hope next week and next year. Friends, I have good news for you. No matter who is in the White House next month or in 13 months, right, 13-ish months, no matter who lives in the White House, Jesus is still on the throne. That's really good news. <laughs> I'm going to remind you a lot, I think, of that in 2020. <laughs> Whatever happens in your job in the next year, Jesus is still on the throne. Whatever is going on with your kids, Jesus is still on the throne. Whatever is going on in your marriage or your dating relationships or your friendships, Jesus is still on the throne. The secret to contentment is not getting what you want on Wednesday or at some other point in your life. The secret to contentment in life is not found in, what, in getting what you want. In some ways, the real struggle in life, this is the other thing I think you learn when you start becoming middle-aged. Sometimes the, the, the worst thing in life is to get what you asked for and then discover that it doesn't actually satisfy you. And so the secret to contentment in life is really uh, the central message of the book of Revelation. Despite the way things look, Jesus is on the throne. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. Everything is going to be okay. He is at work, and he is using even the things that we cannot understand to bring about his purposes in the world. And you need to know that because to live a patient, contented, and yet still urgent life in this world, you have got to know that God knows what he's doing. If you watch the news, if you believe the stories, it doesn't look like things are going very well. I don't know if the human race always believes that we're on the brink of disaster or if that's like a new feature of the last few years, but it certainly feels to us, doesn't it, like something has got to give. Um, God is on the throne. God is on the throne. And I think that many Christians seem to think that it's a time to be discouraged. Um, I think that many Christians think that, well, I think that we live lives that are dominated by fear. And many Christians think that the solution to living in the place and the time that we live is to, I don't know, maybe run away. Maybe there's somewhere else we could live that would make things easier. Or maybe, maybe the solution is to uh, 
protect our family and hunker down and kind of turn in on, on ourselves. But friends, what if the opposite is actually true? What if God is actually at work? And what if everything that's going on in our country is a growing unrest that can only truly be satisfied by God himself? And what if the growing unrest that we feel in our country is actually a sign that God is at work and that he's on the move and, and the chaos that feels like it's kind of bubbling all around us is what God is actually going to use in some way that we can't even foresee in our world. And what if in the middle of all that he wants to use you and he wants to use me and he wants to use Resurrection OC? Jesus is on the throne and everything's going to be okay. God is at work and that means that he is moving all things towards his purposes. He knows what he's doing and he is using everything to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And so I want to just finish this morning by telling you one story I heard this week of how God is at work um, sort of despite the way we would think it ought to go. Uh, if you're aware of these things, if, if, um, if you pay attention to the role of the church in the world, one thing that you may be aware of is that around the world, um, missionaries, but especially, um, especially American missionaries, are being expelled from, from, from foreign countries. And uh, many people kind of take this as a sign, and, and uh, we see this in other ways in, in our country too, where we have this sense that faith is disappearing, uh, that Christian faith is, is kind of, um, you know, we're told, like, I think I said this last week, but like 500 years ago, everybody was a Christian, and then every day, like, one person walks away from their faith to the point where now, like, nobody's a Christian, and you're a dinosaur if you, if you follow Jesus, and it's just a matter of time until you become extinct too. And that's kind of the, the, the story that our, our culture tells us. And, um, you know, there, there are countries around the world where um, um, Christian faith is outlawed. Missionaries cannot, American missionaries cannot get in there. There are places like Iran and North Korea where American missionaries can't, and you kind of respond and look at that and say, like, well, what can we do? You know, if we can't get in, and despite all of the money that we might put behind it, there's literally nothing that we could do. Um, and the story I heard this, this, this last week I thought was incredible. Um, a woman, uh, a Brazilian woman, um, talking about an outreach that her church is involved in uh, in Iran. And, and, what, and what the reporting is that the church in Iran... Um, it, uh, you know, the wise men that came to visit Jesus probably came from Iran. I mean, there, there have been people trying to bring the gospel into Iran for thousands of years, and it's been almost fruitless until the last several years. And the church in Iran is growing like crazy. There's almost a million Christians in Iran. But here's the point of this. this. This woman who's involved in this ministry to Iran is is Brazilian. And she's a part of the Brazilian Baptist Church. And she was saying that in the midst of economic recession in, in Brazil, that the Brazilian Baptist Church has made a decision to not cut giving, 
not cut giving away the money that they're, that they're giving away. And there are three areas of the world where they're focusing their giving, and it's, um, it's in Iran and China and North Korea. Three parts of the world where no matter how many dollars you have behind you as an American, it's, it's almost impossible um, to get into those countries as an American missionary. And so the question then is, why can the Brazilians do it? And here's, this is the point of what I'm, what I'm getting at. It's because all of these countries love Brazilian soccer. <laughs> Who would have thought that God would use the Brazilian soccer team to open a door to the gospel in these countries that are off limits to people that have the most money? And so there are people from Iran and from North Korea who are going to Brazil like for soccer tournaments or whatever that are being used to take the gospel back to, to um, countries that are closed to American missionaries. Isn't it just like God who turned the world upside down uh, on that first Christmas 2,000 years ago? to use the Brazilian soccer team to open the door to um, the gospel in these countries that no amount of might or power or financial resource can reach. Friends, the baby born at Christmas now sits on the throne of the cosmos, and from there he rules over all things until he comes back again. And that's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for Christmas. We thank you for this incredible picture of what you're doing even now uh, in the world as we have studied the book of Revelation. And God, I pray that this morning, if we have entered this uh, place uh, discouraged or skeptical or uh, just feeling frenzied, that we would leave full of hope. Not because we finally figured out the right um, view on every cultural social issue and not because we've got the perfect Christmas plans that are about to be executed but because we know that our Savior who came into the world 2,000 years ago is still sitting on his throne and so God we with the Apostle John, cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We love you so. Amen.